everyone. This is Dr. Eeks, your host of Causes or Cures, the health, public health, wellness, whatever podcast. (laughs) How are you all doing? I hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you stick around, subscribe, share, you know, get the word out. All right. So I work in public health. I eat, sleep, drink the stuff lately. And, you know, that word misinformation, misinformation, it's on everybody's mind. It's on your mind, unless you had the luxury of staying under a rock the entire pandemic. And if you did, well, you need to write a book on how you did that. Um, But anyhow, right, it's a problem because we really don't know what to do with misinformation. And, you know, do we really want to go down the route of censorship? Because think about the things that that could potentially lead to. Um, There's so many players on the battlefield. Anyhow, to talk about these issues with me today, I am super excited to have on Causes or Cures, Dr. Joe Schwarz. Dr. Joe is an author, researcher, chemist, professor, current director of McGill University's Office of Science and Society that has the mission of separating sense from nonsense. Sense from nonsense. He is also one of the spokespeople for Science Up First, which is a science communication initiative aimed at reducing misinformation about COVID-19. So what are we going to talk about in this podcast? Well, we're going to have a conversation about what misinformation is, what a credible source is today, who gets to decide what misinformation is or what is shared, what is censored, how you distinguish between misinformation and scientific dissent, which I think is a very important thing that we need to do, what should and shouldn't be censored, and the potential problems that the way we handle misinformation online could lead to. That said, let's just jump in and connect with Dr. Joe Schwartz. So Dr. Joe Schwartz, I'm saying that right, right? Yes, yes. Um, So I read your background. You have a really interesting background that started with magic. It did. (laughs) Um, And and then you went into chemistry, uh, uh, but I figured... I could kind of say, well, right now you're director of McGill's Office for Science and Society. Is that right? Yes. And you work with Science Up First, which is going to be relevant to this conversation, which is going to be about misinformation and deciphering between dissent and misinformation, which I'm really interested in. But can you give a brief overview of your bio and what you do now? Sure. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, I got started uh, very early in this business. Uh, It was actually back in grade six, which which was a a couple of years ago. And uh, I was invited (laughs) to a birthday party. And uh, my friend's parents had hired a magician. And he did a number of tricks, most of which uh, I've long forgotten. They weren't very good. But then he did one that turned out to be memorable and and truly life-changing. Uh, when he took uh, three pieces of rope, or so it seemed, and um, he blended them into one long rope magically, but the magic was produced by what he said was an invisible magic chemical that he had taken from his pocket and sprinkled on these ropes. Of course, I knew back then that uh, there was no such magic chemical, but I wondered why he had used these words. 
why magic chemical instead of abracadabra or hocus pocus or alakazam, the usual, you know, right, words right. magician uses. So I got intrigued and I went to the school library and I took out a book on magic and I took out a book on chemistry. And I've followed those ever since. And of course, it may seem like this is a very weird juxtaposition because chemistry, of course, is a hard science firmly rooted in the laws of nature. And magic is the opposite, right? I mean, what does a magician pretend to do to counter the laws of nature, to cut women in half and restore them, to, right. to have subjects float in the air, defy gravity, right? Yeah. Uh, of, of course, as soon as I started reading, it became quickly apparent that uh, there were certain apparatus that were involved in levitations <laughs> and, and suspensions, and that the magician was just an actor playing the role of magic, huh. of, of a magician. And uh, that got me reading some more and got me into the world of skepticism, because most magicians are skeptics in the sense that they become filed when they see their art being used to defraud people. So the same magic trick that can be used to entertain an audience can be used in a darkened seance room to convince the gullible that spirits have appeared. And ah. this, of course, has been a big bone to pick ever since Houdini, who was a champion of, of uh, defrauding <laughs> these uh, mediums. And uh, so I got in interested in, in, uh, in skepticism. So it was magic, skepticism, and of course, science. And mm -hmm. I've uh, pursued those. And, uh, you know, there's this strong interplay between all of these, because when you're a skeptic, which incidentally does not mean that you don't believe anything, a skeptic just means show me the evidence and I'm happy to jump on the bandwagon. And right, uh, right. so, uh, you know, I've been following these. And, and when you have a background in magic, it, it kind of uh, gives you the, um, the armaments to sniff out pseudoscience because you learn what tricks are involved, you know, in, in uh, making people believe the, uh, the unbelievable. And uh, so I, I, I had the idea even, you know, very old in, in, my, in my life that uh, uh, I would like to sort of relate all the stuff that I had been reading about, you know, on my own uh, to students and the public at large, because once I got into high school, I, I was kind of disappointed with what I was learning, or I should say not learning, you know, I, mm -hmm. I had hoped to get into the intricacies of chemistry, because I had been reading a lot about this. It didn't happen. I mean, we learned how to, you know, draw diagrams of apparatus, but we never used the apparatus. And, right. and uh, you know, so I, I thought that if I ever got into academia or the chance to teach, I would do it differently. And luckily, uh, I did get that chance. Yeah. And uh, ever since I, I began uh, teaching, I always emphasized the connections between uh, what you learn in the classroom and everyday life. And if I couldn't for myself come up with a reasonable connection of why they should be learning some theory, I, I thought it was not important to, to teach it. Uh, now, of course, it does not have to be imminently applicable. You just have to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I mean, when you learn about quantum mechanics, which is, of, uh, of, of course, uh, uh, pretty devastating for most students, 
but it becomes less so when you start giving them examples of why it is important to, right. to learn this, you know, how it eventually translates into something that is applicable. And, uh, you know, because I, I got involved in, in all of this business on, on how to make science relevant, uh, I also started to see all of the pseudoscience that is out there. And uh, these days, of course, it's aided and abetted by the internet, which in right. a way, of course, is, is uh, fantastic. I mean, you know, I haven't been to a library in, in, in years. <laughs> I mean, why should I go to the library? It comes to me with a few keystrokes. Yeah. But um, of course, also with those same few keystrokes, you can uh, get involved with all the pseudoscientific websites. And uh, you can see how easily people are misguided because the pseudoscientists have actually learned to don the cloak of science. They have learned how to speak in pseudoscientific terms, which sounds very impressive. And they can make very, very compelling arguments. And they actually uh, have courses and seminars on how to get their information across. Whereas those of us in the world of academia uh, generally historically have not paid much attention to that. Uh, researchers are quite content to be in their ivory towers and uh, not interact with, with the public. That's true. And I, I always thought that, you know, that was a real frailty. And um, uh, I thought that, you know, unless you can translate your research in, into words that an average, you know, semi-intelligent person can understand, there's not much point in doing it because we really are at the surface of the uh, service of the public. I mean, the reason we do science is to see how we can make the world better. And we have the responsibility of translating whatever information we have acquired uh -huh. to the public in a, in a way that they can understand it. So here's my question, my first question. Um, and I appreciated that um, explanation. And I, when you were talking about mediums, it made me think of that um, series I watched on Netflix, which was to me more of a comedy. I got a kick out of it, but then I realized people actually believe the mediums. Um, but anyways, so I was, so for, for example, the science up first website, and this is, everybody's kind of paying attention to misinformation, um, because of COVID-19, right. And there we're in the pandemic and they're, they're, they say there's an infodemic, um, and I was looking at the website and there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of government involvement or like organizations that might be considered government. Um, and there's a lot of distrust right now uh, for government bodies. And so, and I was thinking in my head, like, well, how are you defining credible sources today? Is it the same way that we've always defined credible sources? Well, to me, uh, you know, the, the font of all scientific information, of course, is the peer-reviewed research. But we also have to be honest and admit that uh, although we worship at the altar of peer review, maybe a bit too much, uh, it isn't, uh, the, that information is not set in stone. I mean, obviously there have been cases in history where uh, papers have appeared in the proper peer-reviewed literature. I mean, obviously, Andrew Wakefield's uh, fraudulent paper in The Lancet is an excellent example, where these mm -hmm. papers have, have appeared. And uh, uh, you know, uh, until 
other researchers failed to reproduce the results. They were out there and, uh, and they were acted upon, they, they were believed. But nevertheless, um, we don't have a better alternative than the peer-reviewed uh, literature. You know, it's, it's like uh, Churchill uh, supposedly said, democracy is just a terrible system of government, but show me one that's better. Right, right. Uh, you know, so uh, what else can we do but have our work uh, looked at by competent scientists, be evaluated, initiate discussions, and see where that, that leads. So that's the, the big difference between the world of science and the world of pseudoscience is that we can back up uh, whatever we say by evidence drawn from the, the global scientific literature, which of course is not ironclad. So, you know, it still comes down to making good educated guesses. And one of the big issues we face these days is because of the plethora of publications out there, some highly respectable and some, of course, what we call predatory journals, where you can get anything published as long as you pay your, your page charges. Uh, and, you know, the, the general public doesn't really differentiate between the high quality journals, you know, and the Indian Journal of Homeopathy. Uh, so this is one of the problems we face is, is that because of the tremendous amount of papers being published, uh, the, by latest count, there are about five scientific papers published every single minute of every day. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's un unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so you, you can draw on the supposed peer-reviewed literature to, to back up almost any point that you, you want to make. That's true. But, I've noticed that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a, it's a, also a question of, of knowing the difference between the really reliable sources and the ones that are not reliable and looking at who is behind them, where do these people work? Uh, is there you know, any kind of financial gain to be had for whatever uh, issue they are pushing? Well, can we, can we, can we yeah. expand on that? Because that, I think that's uh, part of, I think the problem today. And I, I sometimes tell people, I think I, instead of there being a crisis of misinformation, which there are a lot of, there's a lot of untruths out there. But to me, it's more of a trust crisis. People don't know who to trust. And you know, recently I had on my podcast researchers who published an article showing, for example, the dominant biomedical research agenda was um, dominated by large drug companies, which have um, you know profit as their primary interest. A lot of people think uh, the government has been captured by uh, drug companies. Um, and there's examples. I mean, you know, they look how much they spend on lobbying. So I think, Absolutely. and there's historical yeah. examples, you know, big lawsuits. I mean, the opioid epidemic, right? We don't have to go further than that, where they hid the uh, data showing that these, the, hey, these drugs are actually more addictive than we're telling you guys. Yes. So it, it is, I mean, they make massive amounts of money and they have massive amounts of influence so they certainly I, do. And I think, you yeah. know, anyone who is uh, in tune with, with science will know that uh, pharmaceutical companies are not philanthropic enterprises. Right. They are, they are businesses, right? right. And right. obviously they want to make money. 
But just because there's the chance of making money doesn't mean that you distrust you know, all the information that they produce. You have to, to examine it critically. So this, the same way that we examine any new paper, whether it's published by an academic researcher university or by someone in a pharmaceutical company, you look at the evidence, not who did the work. Let the science speak for itself. And uh, while there's a lot of muck in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, of course, they have also come up with the uh, useful drugs. I mean, you know, when you just take a look at the history of vaccination where, you know, we no longer worry about polio, we no longer worry about uh, uh, smallpox, uh, tuberculosis is, is on the wane. Uh, you know, and I mean, uh, look at the antivirals that, that have basically pushed AIDS into the background. So those were all developments by uh, so-called big pharma. Mm -hmm. uh, so one also has to be careful here not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Agreed. But, but you sure want to monitor the temperature of that bathwater. Right. You know, which is right. what we really need to do when it comes to any kind of uh, pharmaceutical uh, intervention. And I mean, right now, we are dealing uh, obviously with the uh, story of the vaccines yes. and with the uh, emerging of the new antivirals. Right. And uh, that's a very topical thing now because both Merck and Pfizer have just come out with uh, new oral antivirals uh, work by slightly different mechanism of, of action. And uh, so whether or not, you know, uh, we rely on these, depends on how we evaluate the scientific information. I mean, you know, you have to take a look at the trials, what they really did show, how many people were involved and whether or not we're putting too many eggs into one basket. Uh, and it takes a lot of work and, you know, some expert know-how to evaluate uh, these things because these are very complex, uh, you know, uh, issues. Right, and they're they're new. I mean, these things are new. I mean, the vaccines. Um, you know, I got my vaccine, but you know, I I did my own kind of risk benefit. Uh, but I definitely was. Um, I had concerns. You know, um, for example, when they're doing studies now on why, um, you know, menstruating people have may have changes. You know, and you yes. you may you may want answers to that. And you know, you have to tell people we don't, well we don't know. But then the message has been from government bodies. Well, they're safe and effective. You know, and it's. I understand that message because it's um, you want to get people vaccinated as part of a public health initiative. But don't you think some of um, these concerns are valid? Um, obviously, absolutely, absolutely okay. they're valid. I mean, science works on a spectrum, right? Uh, just about everything in in life, as you know, in my experience, has you know its ups and downs. Its issues are not white or black; they're gray. And they, they work on the principle of the bell curve, where, you know, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, scientific research, scientific publication, uh, some are excellent at one end of the bell curve, others are dismal at the other end of the bell curve, and most are in between, you know, where they don't add a whole lot to our overall uh, knowledge. Uh, so you have to, to you know, evaluate where a piece of novel science falls on that curve. And it's all, it isn't always easy to evaluate it right at the beginning, you know, uh, because no one can predict the future. So all we can do is go by whatever 
evidence we have at, uh, at a given time. And sometimes you just have to change your mind. But it's perfectly understandable that people have some concern or some have hesitancy over any novel medical uh, introduction because the body, of course, is a very complex system. Uh, it's the most complex machine on the face of the earth. And uh, you don't know when you put something into the body to what extent you may be throwing a wrench into the works. Right, right. right. I mean, that, that yeah, yeah. really takes a time until you give a more definitive answer. But you also can't always wait in order to do something. You know, mm -hmm. if, if uh, then you end up, uh, you know, just uh, trotting in mud. Right, in limbo. I mean, at some yeah. point, you have to make reasonable guesses on, on how to proceed. And when you're dealing with a situation like, you know, we're dealing with here, which isn't the common cold. I mean, we're dealing with a situation here that, that probably has changed our life forever. Mm -hmm. So you may be willing to take some risks that you would not take uh, when... Uh, you know, you're thinking about a hair dye, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, a different kind of, uh, of issue. Well, hair dye is actually a very serious uh, decision. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I, I, I definitely, I, I hear where you're coming from. And I guess my next question, you know, so sometimes I've seen online. Um, so for example, the debate over naturally acquired immunity, um, you know, and there's large studies out of Israel that yeah. looks good, right, for um, people who recovered. And then there's um, CDC, morbidity and mortality weekly reports. Those studies um, say, oh, well, the vaccine is 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 better um, than naturally acquired immunity. And then, you know, if you get one shot and you, and you recovered, it's even better. But I've noticed some of well, the- Well, I think that's, that's the answer is that the combination <laughs> is better than, than the individual components. That might be true, but I haven't seen, you know, some of these large media networks, when I look at their fact checking things, some of them don't even mention the studies from Israel. And, yeah. um, and you know, and you look, you look at the, um, the Israeli vaccine pass passport, so to speak, they recognize proof of immunity by, you know, recovery from past infection. And so stuff like that makes me wonder, well, who are these fact checkers and why are they calling this misinformation? Because it seems like kind of like a really reductive yeah. label. Well, they, uh, we have a you know, growing amount of evidence about the benefits of natural uh, acquired immunity. Uh, however, they, the danger in, in you know, promoting that uh, too much is that then people think, well, you know, maybe I should go out and uh, Right. See infection if I can parties. get infected, you know, mm -hmm. to myself. And that obviously is a very bad decision because the uh, risk of getting really sick with COVID is very significant. Right. So you, you don't want to purposely acquire the, uh, the disease. But indeed, if, if once you have had it and you have recovered from it, yeah, there's a good chance that your natural immunity is very good. Of course, we don't know how long it lasts. Right, right. Because well, not well, a long enough time has, has passed. Uh, we don't know how long the protection from uh, the vaccine lasts either. Right, right. Okay, but, you know, to, to me at this point, the most important point is that you look at uh, ICUs across North America, mm -hmm. count the number of people in ICUs, Yep. And the overwhelming majority 
or unvaccinated people. Right, and I, I said, I actually wrote a blog today um, where I said, I'm trying to find a consistent data point. And so far, when I look at data from Singapore, Israel, UK, Ireland, here, it seems to be that the vaccine is keeping you from dying and keeping you out of the hospital. Although there, there is that, there, I think I looked at New Mexico's data and they are seeing like, you know, an uptick in, in breakthrough hospitalizations, which is concerning. And I said to myself, well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what the, I hope none of these doomsday uh, things come true. Cause I'll just, I will be in trouble with all the millions of other people, you know? But um, you know, with statistics, <laughs> statistics can be, you know, misleading. Mm -hmm. As you know, as the Israelis said, there are lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. Uh, <laughs> and the the uh, thing here is that you know, with all this talk about increasing breakthrough infections in, in vaccinated people, well, this is something that we should expect because obviously the vaccine is not perfect. So there will be people who get infected after they've been vaccinated. And even though percentage may be small, as the number of people who are vaccinated grows, which of course is happening, you know, around the world, maybe not as fast as it should be, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. The vaccination rate is increasing. So even though the percent of breakthroughs is small, you're going to see a greater number of breakthroughs because there's a number of vaccinated people. So we should statistically expect more hospitalizations from breakthroughs because there just obviously are more people vaccinated and there will be more breakthroughs. Right, right. And, and I agree with you. I, I do think though that, um, and I was part of um, the communication campaign right in the beginning and we were telling everyone we're going to be back to normal by the summertime and you're going to be able to go out and have fun. And that didn't happen either. So, yeah, and maybe- well, <laughs> and maybe it was <laughs> predictions predictions are are uh, very very disturbing because you never know you never right. know what the future is right and uh, you have to be very careful about making predictions yeah uh, you know, telling one, people they don't have to wear yeah. their mask or you could take it off and then oh you have to put it back on again you know, we don't have a crystal ball mm -hmm. and there are some things that can happen where you can't even think about what could happen. And one example that I, I often give, if we go back to the 1930s or 1940s, when refrigerators uh, used sulfur dioxide and ammonia as a refrigerant, and you had a leak in your kitchen, you could die. We replaced them with freons, right? The chlorofluorocarbons, which are inert and safe in terms of inhalation, nothing happens to you if you know. Who could then have predicted that 50 years in the future, you would see Freon destroying the ozone layer in the stratosphere? Right. How could right. you have even thought of something like that, right? Right, right. So you, you can't cover all your stuff happens that is totally unpredictable. So that's why I keep coming back to the point that all we can do is make our best possible educated guess based on the data that we have at any given time. And it's not a crime to have to change one's opinion. In fact, that is one of the hallmarks of science, that it changes. 
mm -hmm. changes as new evidence becomes available. And the hallmark of pseudoscience is that it never changes. The same arguments keep being used without looking at any kind of development. Mm, I see what you're saying. That's interesting. Pseudoscience doesn't change. No, homeopathy is the is the best example of that. Right, right. Uh, because you know, if you take a look at the arguments against it and and for it, the same arguments were voiced 200 years ago as now. I see. Okay. Not, well, nothing, that's... nothing has evolved. Whereas right. you, know, you look at proper medicine, it is evolving on a daily basis. Right. Right. Well, and I think that goes back to, uh, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people involved in wellness and, you know, one thing that drives me nuts is wellness is sort of presented like this luxury brand on one hand, but also, you know, everything natural is good, which is not true, right? right. There's a lot of toxins in nature and there's I mean, toxins I would say everywhere. This, this uh, natural myth is probably the biggest myth that I've had to confront in all my years of being in this business. You know, uh, the idea that somehow natural is to be worshipped and synthetic is to be swept away. Yes. And it's just, it's a ridiculous uh, argument. And it's, you know, made by people who really do not have any kind of real understanding of, of science. And, you know, I mean, you have to point out to them that uh, whether a molecule was made by mother nature in a, in a plant or by a chemist in a lab, uh -huh. has absolutely no bearing on its safety and efficacy. The only way we can determine mm -hmm. that is by studying it and by knowing its you know, molecular structure and what it does and what it, it, it doesn't do, not by its ancestry. Right, right. Uh, what would you say about organic foods versus, or like whole foods versus processed foods? I mean, there, well, there's some evidence that, you know, well, I mean, the, the, those are quite different questions. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, processed food uh, is a huge problem uh, in, you know, in, in diet. I mean, by processed foods, we, you know, usually mean stuff that comes in boxes, comes in cans, and uh, not the stuff that you find around the periphery of the uh, supermarket. And... Uh, in, you know, there's accumulating evidence that the closer we are to a, a plant-based diet, uh, the better it is for us. So I, I think processed foods indeed are a culprit, mostly because they contain a lot of salt, they contain a lot of, uh, of fat, and they of, of, of many nutrients. Now, when you uh, compare um, organic to, to conventional, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples and, you know, oranges mm -hmm. to oranges. So, um, I mean, let, let's say if you compare uh, organic canola oil to conventional canola oil, there is no difference. There's no difference. There's, there's no lab that can find a difference between those. Right? Okay. However, uh, when you, know, uh, you say that, uh, you know, an animal uh, was fed only organic food, uh, which doesn't have any pesticide residues, it can mean that that organic meat will contain less pesticide residues than conventionally produced meat. Now, whether or not that difference makes a difference, you know, in your health, that's a completely different question. Right. Uh, no, I mean, nobody to, to, to my knowledge has shown that, that, you know, consuming an organic diet is preferable to consuming a conventional diet when you're looking at the same foods. Right. I, I agree. I, 
Well, I actually think that they didn't find any difference in the nutritional value. There was some study. I, I don't recall it exactly. Yeah, I mean, over, overall, I would say it is not worth paying the money for organic foods, which tend to be much more expensive. True. And studies have shown that people who, uh, who basically make a religion about organic uh, often end up eating fewer uh, healthy foods because they're more expensive. Oh, that's so, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I can tell the difference between an organic strawberry and non-organic strawberry, but that just might be my brain playing tricks on me. Well, or, or it, <laughs> well, you know, it could also be that it's just a different variety of strawberry because uh, when you breed strawberries, you, you know, you breed them for specific reasons. And uh, it may be that that organic strawberry has been crossbred and crossbred uh, in order to, to uh, do better without uh, pesticides. It, it just may be a different variety of strawberry that happens to taste better. But uh, like you said, you know, the, the mind also plays games here. So the only way you know is by you know, doing proper testing. To, to see you know, if there really is a difference in, uh, in taste. Now, often uh, organic foods are fresher. That's true. Mm, okay. and, that, and that certainly can have an effect on the taste. Okay. I mean, and I know organic is a buzzword and I even notice in myself, I like the buzzwords, organic, all natural, immune boosting. They sound right. pleasant well, and they're good for- Let's <laughs> have some. It does have some importance when it comes to to environmental effects. Right. Uh, that's true. true. That's true. That's true. But when it comes to nutrition, that's a that's a different story. And the immune boosting, well, that that is just a marketing gimmick. But a lot of people love that word. I mean, yeah, and I mean, as you know, everywhere. the immune system is an unbelievably complex system of of organs, cells, you know, <laughs> various yeah. molecules in the body. So, you know, I mean, I have debates with these organic, uh, with these immune boosting people, and you know, first question you ask, well, tell me, exactly what part of the immune system is being boosted, mm. and how do you know that that is happening? And tell me, what exactly do you mean by immune system? And they usually shut up very quickly because they just don't, they can't address that. They just don't right. know. To they them, um, you know, the immune system is just something that, that is needed to keep you healthy, which of course is true, but it is an unbelievably complex system. And then there's no evidence that any single food can, can um, affect the immune system. What you can say, if you have a healthy diet, you are more likely to resist disease. This is true. And once again, you know, we, we come back to, to uh, uh, eating more plant foods. And, you know, I've, I've come to that uh, conclusion based on, on dealing with, you know, these issues for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Certainly philosophically, I'm not a fan of this. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I like a burger and, and you know, mm -hmm. I like a good steak. Right. But, I also recognize that um, this is not where the evidence is leading. Right, right. So in science, you, you hopefully go by the, by the evidence and uh, there's just, um, you know, mounting amount of evidence. Right. That the traditional North American diet is not the healthiest diet. No, definitely not. Um, but it, it is interesting. And it, I think that's one 
one of my issues with the wellness industry industry has been how reductive it's become where, you know, this ingredient is bad and this ingredient is good. And, and I find that very stressful because I mean, when you You read, they (laughs) they basically have simple solutions to complex problems, you know, and that sells in the marketplace. That's, Oh, I know. I mean, and honestly, if I was going to make a supplement, I would use all those words immune boosting. And if I just wanted to make money, I would just use all of those words. Um, There's no if here. That is exactly (laughs) what they do. (laughs) You know, you look at all those ads, it's all, it's natural, it's organic, it's immune boosting, it's no toxins, it's chemical free. Chemical free, toxin free. And I have asked people to define toxin and what detoxing means. And I often, you know, just, they don't know. It just stops there. Obviously, you know, being chemistry prof, chemical free is the one that drives me nuts oh chemical free yeah yeah show me me something that is chemical free um but i guess it's more of like a i mean i I definitely believe there are healthier things people can do uh usually they they're not so expensive you know you could just everyday lifestyle changes that you can make which is my goal to you know for wellness wellness the best lifestyle change you can make is to exercise. Unfortunately, you can't mm. bottle it. You right. Can't, you can't sell it. Right, right. You know, the evidence is overwhelming for the benefits of exercise. Right. Why do you think um, people, you know, for example, hardcore, and I, there are people who have concerns about this vaccine and I, I totally get that and I hear them. Um, but, you know, I've noticed, and I've had, I've tried to have conversations with people who I would guess, I don't like to use the word anti-vaxxer, but um, people who who are guests are like hardcore anti-vaxxers and they're very almost militant. Um, And then, you know, often sometimes they'll- For the hardcore people, it's almost like a religion. Yeah, and they're tough to- There's no point in arguing with that. Just like there's no point arguing religion. It's a non-vinable argument. Right, but what I never understood was what is going on in the brain when you are willing to take a supplement that hasn't been tested by anyone and you seem okay with that, you know, versus, I mean, I get, why not have concerns about both? Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, you know, you constantly hear this argument that we don't know what's in the vaccine, which is actually exactly what's in the vaccine. Right. But, But when it comes to the supplements, not only are the potential benefits questionable, but you really don't know what's in there because there's nobody overseeing that industry, right? I mean, um, uh, actually more so in the US than than in in Canada, you have that absolutely obscene piece of legislation, 1994, the Dietary Supplement uh, and Education Act, which is ludicrous. It allows the sale of anything as long as you call it a dietary supplement. Mm. And uh, there is absolutely no overseeing that industry. The FDA can only take action if it finds that there is a problem. Mm. There's absolutely no pre-market approval required. Right, right. You know, you can put together a supplement and start selling it, period. And unless somebody complains and, you know, there's a real problem found, nothing happens. You, you start raking in the money. Right. Right. I mean, and I, I, I don't personally take any supplements. I do have melatonin, but I also know that I don't really know how much 
melatonin. Okay, well, let me, let, me, let, me tell, let me tell you about melatonin because I've actually okay. uh, experimented with that because I'm not a great sleeper. And, um, I, you know, I've certainly spoken to a lot of uh, melatonin uh, experts and you find out that they don't really know the answer either. So, you know, I, I've tried the different doses of, uh, you know, from one to 10 milligrams. What I find works is the melatonin spray, uh, which is the sublingual spray. Huh? You spray okay. it under, under the tongue. Yeah. And um, uh, three sprays is three milligrams. And uh, I would say that most of the time it works. It, it doesn't work all the time. Most of the time it works. You, you do it, uh, you know, half an hour to an hour before you, you want to go to sleep. And it, uh, it works. Um, I'll try it. I'm on the gummies right now. Yeah. Also, what works is recording the Dr. Oz show and watching that before you want to go to sleep. <laughs> that works too. <laughs> um, all right. So, let, yeah, we talked a little bit about this when I chatted with you on the phone. Um, I asked this question at a, at a health communications conference. Uh, there's a journalist in the room and that kind of thing. And I said, how do you weed out scientific dissent from misinformation? Um, because I think it's important to do that if, if we look at history. And I agree that for every Galileo or whoever, Copernicus, whoever, there's there's going to be people who are contrarian and wrong. There are a lot of them. If they go against the consensus, I get that. But but time and time again, there's someone who's right and ends up changing the course of science or history. Of course. I mean, the, the classic story there is Barry Marshall, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the Helicobacter pylori story. Right. Uh, because when he first suggested that, that, you know, ulcers were caused by bacterium, everyone in the scientific community says, what the hell are you talking about? You know, it's caused by hyperacidity. It's caused by stress, caused right. by spicy diet, etc. Right. And then, of course, in a, admittedly, in a very foolhardy fashion, he took the bacterium and <laughs> triggered gastroenteritis and cured himself with antibiotics, which, which launched studies. And, you know, within three years, uh, triple therapy, uh, triple antibiotic therapy was on the market, right? Because the evidence became crystal clear that, that he was right. And obviously, he was uh, rewarded with the Nobel Prize. But that is a, it's a fantastic story and it's a captivating story. But, you know, as you said, for every Barry Marshall, uh, there are a million Joe Mercolas and, uh, you know, who are totally not scientific and just pure non nonsense. So the question is, how do you tell the difference? The evidence tells the story. That's, you know, always my thing. Show me the evidence, let's evaluate. Let's see who did the work, where was it done, how reputable are the scientists, what is their background, where, what institution are they working at, what is the chance of making money off of their work, uh, which peer-reviewed journal did it appear in. So you try to mesh all of those together, you know, and, and instead of cherry-picking data, you shake the tree, you collect all the cherries, you mash them together, and then you taste. Uh, and okay. then you see if there's, you know, if there is a consensus that evolves. But but the consensus might not be there in the beginning. And uh, yes, yes. So, and, and you know, it's it's. Uh, even if it seems crazy, though, let's say it's something, yeah. and you're really like, well, for example, the, I mean, the guy who said we should wash our hands, and he died 
you know, in an insane asylum, I think, because uh, people didn't believe him. That, yeah. Right. Well, what? That's, you know, this, that's a Semmelweis story is another story that is, is often told. Often, yeah. You know, it, it's not exactly, it didn't happen exactly the way the story is told. Well, and, I mean, uh, I'm know. Irish. We like to yeah. embellish our stories. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, no, but it is true that at that, you know, at that point, uh, this, of course, was uh, pre-microbe. I mean, you know, this was pre-Pasteur. Yes. Yes. Nobody, knew, knew, nobody knew about germs. So intuitively, it, it didn't seem possible that, that you know, uh, ridding your hands of something that's invisible wouldn't do anything. You know, in the context of knowledge at the time, washing your hands didn't seem like, like a reasonable thing to, to do because you knew nothing about germs. Uh, but today, our general scientific knowledge is of course much greater, it's much broader. We have a very good understanding of what is important in, in you know, something working and how the world works. So we have, you know, we have much better knowledge. So we're much less likely to, to throw out the baby with the bathwater than back then when you know, knowledge was very, very superficial. Okay, but the, you know, I've seen some people and they have the credentials, they have the publications, they have the degrees and they voice concerns. And oftentimes I see a, a social media platform slap a disclaimer on them or a video is taken down. And I don't, and I said, well, that's strange. They're, they're trying to go about something. They're using a scientific explanation. They're making a prediction based on how they understand the science. Should we really be censoring them, taking them down. Right. Well, I, you know, I can't really comment on that looking at the specific, uh, you know, specific case. Uh, it depends on which, what is being censored. And right, well, what, let's talk about the, um, the virologist. Um, can we use him as an example? Yeah. Uh, and I, I read I read the article on and you have great writers on your website. Uh, the writing yes, is and then we're looking for more. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean it's it's very easy. It's user friendly. Um, yeah. So, it, and he's he's a very nice man. He's a veterinarian. He's a virologist, and he is presenting a view that's uh, scary. You know, yeah. I have the vaccine, and but I listen to him. I'm like, well, that's scary if 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 what he says comes true. Well, um, uh, yeah, I mean. Uh... Uh, Jonathan, who's my uh, my uh, mm -hmm. colleague who wrote that article, I can tell you he's he's a meticulous researcher. Uh huh. In fact, a little bit on the <laughs> obsessive side. You right. know, he is right. uh, so scared of getting something wrong that that he overworks at it. So I, I tend to trust his research, and he really has looked into this, you know, in great detail. And it's all documented. If you see his references, you know. I, yes, no, it was very well done. It's well, all documented. So what can I say? I mean, this is, you know, this is the conclusion that um, he came to based would, on considering everything that can be considered. What would happen though if Jonathan sat down with him and had just a conversation? Uh, frankly, I think he would, <laughs> he would go away licking his wounds. <laughs> who would lick, who would go away? Like, oh, the, okay. The, 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 well, sometimes I think we should encourage that though. Yeah. Even if an idea seems crazy. Uh, yes. uh, and, uh, I mean, I've, I've done this, you know, I've, I've certainly had, uh, 
headache uh, debates with uh, uh, people, mostly homeopaths, you know, in, in front of well okay but this guy's not a homeopath i mean he's yeah no no but i mean i you know and i've had debates with vaccine deniers etc and uh, it's it's a difficult thing difficult thing uh, to you know uh, well i just think some of these dissenters though they're not they're clearly not homeopaths uh no right there's there's uh, you know i don't at all shy away from having debates with people who have you know a sound mind and a sound understanding of science right um uh, i just I feel like they're resent, getting put uh, yeah. in i do resent having to have a debate with a, a flat earther you know right no of course and why would you waste your time um and and that i understand i just think you know, I like to hear from, I mean, I can talk to anyone usually unless they're super militant, but you know, some of the, the scientists and the dissenters, um, the scientific dissenters who are going, who are maybe not, just don't agree with certain portions sure. of I mean, the that, consensus. That really is the essence of, of science. Exactly, that, you know, exactly. The essence of science is you, you know, you evaluate the evidence and you see where it leads. It just, I just, feel like a lot of the times or i've seen examples where people are they're trying to uh, explain their opinion their scientific opinion based on their understanding and the evidence and i don't know how good the evidence is but that's that's what i see them doing and then suddenly they're labeled they're called anti-vaxxers quacks and a lot of times videos are pulled down or um sometimes their profiles get deleted and i said to myself, is that really what we want to do as a society? Because these are smart people. Maybe they have ulterior motives, but do we really want to just call them all misinformers? No, certainly not all. Uh, you know, uh, that's why you can't generalize. Uh, it's, you know, that's why I can't give a general opinion on this. It depends on on who, what, where, when, what are they saying? You know, each of these uh, uh, comments or dissenters has to be looked at on their own individual merit uh, because, you know, there's a whole range of these people. Right. And sometimes I think they're smarter than the fact checkers who are just quickly labeling them who may not have, sometimes if you know so much about a topic too, you might have more concerns. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. Right, right. You know, the, the thing in science though, is that eventually the truth will out. Right. You know, right. It, it, it may take some time, but eventually it will come out. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I hear you. I and some... that, uh, you know, in a few years time, uh, we will look back and say, you know, I, I, I can't believe that there was ever this controversy about genetic <laughs> modified foods. Right, right. Oh. And I sometimes see people, though, I've talked to scientists who are very frustrated because they feel like they're being censored. And, um, and then I see something else even more sinister happening where people who, uh, are on, who are maybe against science or have, like you said, like these homeopathic opinions sort of start following these people and, and, you know, you know, bringing them in. And I, I see that on another podcast I host because, um, it, it seems like the base is very, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this if they, if anyone, but like almost like radicalized, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to offer, I'm, I'm open to listening to anybody who has a dissenting view. I'm respectful, but um, 
it just seems at the end of the day that people are really tribal or something. I don't know. Yes, and uh, in uh, in the U.S., uh, science is becoming politicized. Yes, and that's that, a huge part of it, right? Yes, it's 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 you know it's it's a tragedy. Yeah. When you see that that someone's belief in in you know vaccines or the antiviral drugs, you know whether they be something illegitimate like ivermectin or uh, legitimate like you know the new Merck drug that their view on it depends on whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. Mm. I mean, why, you know, why should that have anything to, to do with it? You know, it's a, science should speak, not your political leaning. I, I, I agree. Although I don't think the media did themselves any favors when uh, they started calling ivermectin just a horse dewormer drug and saying, like they said, Joe Rogan took that drug and he had a point. He's like, I did not take a horse dewormer deworming drug. I took something prescribed to me by a physician. Well, yeah. Well, the Joe right? is wrong. You know, I mean, there's no question about that. The ivermectin story uh, really uh, has come to a finish because there have been a, a number of proper controlled double blind randomized trials. Uh, right. And I agree that that's what you should follow. You know, um, and in the yeah. beginning, there was smaller trials um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't, I was hopeful um, back, you know, in February. Um, I, now some people I've noticed that they treat ivermectin almost like um, not the doctors who are prescribing it, but the people who really believe in it, it it's become almost like a cult-like. Yes. And that I, that's, that's a turn that turns me off. Cause I, I don't know how to, I just, I can't talk to people like that, you know, like, um, but, but why would anyone take advice from Joe Rogan? I mean, that's, well, that's the point, you know, is, is he is not an expert in science. This is not a question of a dissenting opinion by someone who has a, you know, a proper pedestal on which to stand. He, why would he, people he's take... a scientific nobody. But so what, what, what right does he even have to be giving advice about ivermectin? Uh he's some people say he's relatable i mean i wouldn't take medical or scientific advice from joe rogan yeah, um, people are doing that i mean <laughs> so i mean aaron Rodgers directly said that that is what he did right i and, and he's got a huge following right i mean and i all, for all the wrong reasons when it comes to science but he, you know i mean got, listen my dog had a limp yesterday. And the first person I called is my father, who is a veterinarian. And, you know, some people were telling me, oh, Aaron, do this, take, you know, put this ointment on it. And I'm like, no, I'm calling someone who practices veterinary medicine and asking him what I should do, you know? And then I went and I got, uh, got it looked at today by a different veterinarian here in the city. So I, at the end of the day, though, I feel like if you have a real problem, you I don't know, like to me, I listen to doctors and I, I wouldn't listen to a podcaster, but, but I think there is an appeal though to Joe Rogan because he's extremely popular, right? Of course there's an appeal because he's also one of these who, who presents simple problems to complex problems, hmm. simple solutions for complex problems, you know, and those people have an, have an appeal. I mean, look, Alex Jones has an appeal uh, I don't, I don't like, I don't think he does, but I get it. Yeah, he does to some people. I mean, but... the millions of people listen to him, you know, yeah, I take his stupid colloidal silver. Oh, he said, oh, I didn't hear that one. 
Oh yeah, he promotes colloidal silver. Uh, Many other supplements too, but particularly colloidal silver. Um, so my, I have a couple more questions. Um, uh, what, so when people say misinformation is dangerous, how are they measuring that? Uh, by the number of people who might take some action based, based upon it. People who have decided not to take the vaccine because they've heard that, that it interferes with your DNA. Okay, that's, that's misinformation because actually I would say that that is disinformation because that is clearly, clearly wrong. We know the way that the mRNA vaccine works, right? It goes to the cytoplasm. It doesn't right. go to the nucleus of the cell. It does not incorporate into DNA. So that, that is just a false statement. So anyone who buys into that and says, well, you know, I'm not going to get vaccinated because it could make me into a mutant. It's going to change my DNA. Well, there you have someone who is risking being infected because they're not getting the vaccine for all the wrong reason. So that's, okay. a, that's a question of you know, disinformation. Disinformation. So a measurement will be how many people see something online and then and, follow and take, it. take action upon it. Yeah. Take action. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now the internet is massive, it's huge. And so, and, and here's the thing that I see is, and I'm actually frustrated by this because part of my job is to know what people are saying and what they're talking about. And now there's, there's Telegram, there's all these new video hosting platforms. And um, I wonder, is, is our battle against misinformation by basically banning people who we believe misinform, who post disinformation, whatever, kicking them off, but then they go somewhere else, right? And they build, yeah, yeah. and so isn't that sort of just, aren't we in some way creating echo chambers? Well, I mean, yeah, there's a huge problem. Yeah, I mean, you know, the analogy that is often used is like trying to get information from the internet is like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. When, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. And, and it's, a, it's a difficult thing to monitor and to know just what you should, you know, uh, do about it. Because, you know, as we discussed before, censorship is a very slippery slope. Yeah. You know, where, do you, where do you draw the line? Right. Uh, but, but, I mean, there, there are lines that, that can be drawn. I mean, we do draw lines all over the place, right? We draw a line in school zones. You're not allowed to drive at 100 miles per hour through a school zone. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to drive the wrong way down a one-way street. You're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to take a loaded gun on an airplane. Right. Although apparently you're allowed to take it into a movie set. Right. Oh, yeah. That, well, yeah. Um, but um, I, I agree. And I think, and I think, Sue, some of these uh, organizations may not want the responsibility. And I've, I've sensed that in myself too. Uh, sometimes when I want to feature someone and I get concerned, well, if they put this message out there, even though I'm a curious person, I loved, I can talk to almost anybody. And then I'm like, well, is that going to be a dangerous message? Who's going to listen to it? But then part of me is like, well, let's just let it out there, you know? And so I, I here's the part where I struggle with, do we just start banning misinformation censoring do we do we increase our censorship efforts 
or do we allow because it's the democratic sharing of information and anybody and their brother and sister can share. And then we also allow for the democratic policing of that information, which- Well, I think we have to allow for some policing because uh, obviously hate speech should right. not be allowed anywhere, right? Right, I agree with that, yes. So you, know, so you have to have some some sort of, of policing. Now, you know, is, is uh, you know, telling someone not to get vaccinated because it's gonna alter their DNA you know, where does that rank? But then I feel like the comments, the comments. It's like hate speech, but but comes close to it. But what if we just put that out in full view and had had a conversation about it? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that is what is happening, but, but this is also where, you know, your echo chambers come in is that, that the, that conversation snares only people who are interested in that conversation in the echo chambers right but i think (laughs) there are people who have say you know i heard that i heard that the you know your dna is is altered right they don't go any further you know they don't don't look for discussions about it it was enough for them that, that you know that joe rogan or whatever other god on the internet has said that it's enough for them I, or, I agree. Tucker Carlson, who, who, who I, I think is the, the one that, that really should be reviled the most. If anyone is to be censored or, you know, uh, just thrown off, off the air, it's him. Because uh, he, he actively promotes nonsense. And worse than that, for sure, he knows that he's actively promoting nonsense. Because he's not a stupid man. And he knows that the stupid things that he says well, are, are, are just meant to, to get listeners. I, I think, and I think the media does do stuff for clicks, but we, we talked about this with Andrew Wakefield's study. When I, when I read the study and I, I was like, this is a completely unimpressive study. How did this have so much impact? Because there was only like around 12 kids in it, right? Well, the media, of course, got a hold of it. That's what I'm saying though. And, so, but, but he worked at the media getting a hold of it. You know, okay, well, that right. So that I uh, would call, that's unethical for for a doctor to do that. But the media just ran with all these headlines, and of course, parents are going to get super yeah. scared. Yeah, and um, so that to me was more of uh, well, of course. I mean, you know, the 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 media is certainly not beyond reproach. <laughs> you know, right, right. So on one hand, and you see it too with sensational headlines. Um, you know, and even, and, and I think we should, there should be a, a space where people, if they feel they are, because every medication, every intervention has side effects, has risk. And if that happens, uh, people should be able to share their stories, but oftentimes the media would run with these very frightening headlines. And then they'd get angry that, you know, that people were frightened by those headlines and then deciding not to get vaccinated or not to, to do something. Right. Cause some, some of them were scary. Um, uh, absolutely. I'll tell you one, uh, I'm dealing with this today and I'm, I'm going to write something uh, about it. There was a study that uh, came out in, uh, in Nature, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, uh, today oh. or, or yesterday. Now, Nature is, of course, a you know, top Great journal, yeah. Uh, publication. Okay. Now, there's a coverage of the, the paper that came out with headlines, and I, I have just one example of this. It says, researchers discover link between dietary fat and the spread of cancer, okay? 
Now, it turns out that the dietary fat that they're talking about is palmitic acid, okay, in, in palm oil. Mm. Now, this is a study that was done in mice. Now, well, well done study, you know, it was done in mice and uh, they uh, injected mice with tumors. So they, you know, triggered cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they fed them uh, palmitic acid and, and different doses. And uh, they followed the, uh, the mice for mutations. And there were more mutations in the mice that had uh, you know, been given the palmitic acid. And there were somewhat more cases of metastatic cancer. Okay, very interesting study for sure. Now, if you read the headline, researchers discover link between dietary fat and the spread of cancer. There's not a mention in that headline or in fact in the little clip uh, that this was done in mice and that the tumors were induced and that they were fed amounts of palmitic acid that is totally unrealistic to human intake. Hmm. And, so they, and all of a sudden this story, you know, takes wings yeah. uh, because palm oil is the most widely used oil, you know. In, yeah. uh, so you can see where this is going to head in the next coming days. It's going to head towards watch your palm oil intake because it causes cancer. Sure. And so, you know, here's, here's an example where, you know, the, the media has just used the wrong headline. I mean, there are all kinds of headlines that you can write for, uh, for this. Yeah. But, but, you know, researchers discover link between dietary fat and spread of cancer is, is not the, the, the headline. Uh, I, I agree. I think, it, though, a lot of it, too, might have to do with, like, the changing landscape, right? Before it was the local paper. Now they need all these clicks in order to get advertisement in order to pay their bills and to pay yeah. their staff. That's, an, that's an, another part of this. Okay, here's another one. Palmitic acid promotes cancer metastasis and leaves a more aggressive memory in tumor cells, okay? Okay. Nothing in, the, uh, in this article, which is, again, is just a you know, short clip reporting on the Nature paper, does not mention mice. It does not use the word mice. Mm -hmm. I, you know, this is, is totally irresponsible because right. it certainly gives people the idea that, that something that they're eating is causing more metastatic cancer. Right, right. Oh. I mean, I guess, it, uh, I mean, sometimes for an, an exposure, you have to use animal studies, you know, for randomized controlled trials, but then you try to look at the epidemiological data, right? To see. Well, I mean, the, you know, this is actually, you know, I'm not criticizing the study. I actually looked at the study, very well done, extensive study, looked at the you know, genomics. I mean, really, really well done study. Okay. But what a study like this should do is serve as a springboard for further research, not to come to the conclusion that these headlines come to. Because no one would click on that headline. <laughs> right. that's, not, that's, not what the, that's not what the study demonstrated, and it's not what the, the researchers claim in this study. Right, right. It, it's, it's the way that the uh, media has interpreted the study. And of course, you want to get attention by having some kind of a, you know... Uh, yes. Well, I heard there's a whole science to, head, to writing headlines. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. There's like people who specialize at that. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I know, like, I mean, I know I'm kind of a, if I was a more contrarian 
podcast host for this this one media site, I'd probably have way more views. Um, but then I feel like I'm selling my soul and not be, not being true to who I am, and I don't want to do that. But you do, then you're not gonna you're not gonna make it as far or as fast, so to speak. No, I don't know. And, yeah, and, you know, I mean, the disinformants and the misinformants don't don't worry about selling their soul. Because of course, there's nothing to sell. There's nothing to sell. You know? I mean, if you look at uh, Mercola, who's to me, you know, is the devil incarnate. Oh wow! Uh, I mean, he has no soul. He 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 doesn't care what he says. He can, but he not. can buy one. He can buy several souls because he's yeah. very wealthy. So yeah. he, he absolutely doesn't care. He just wants the the attention. And every day now, he's got some anti-vaccine headline. Uh, you know, you, you can sign up to his uh, daily newsletter and, and just witness this. Well, that, I, you know, every day he comes up with something. I will sign up. I actually haven't signed up for his newsletter. Um, I yeah, signed... you because, you know, I mean, it yeah. pays to know what they're doing, what is out there, especially when someone has literally millions of followers. Right, right. And I mean, I know I know there's people who really like him. And when I talk about him or, you know, express yeah. skepticism, they get angry with me. Yeah. Um, because yeah, they just, I mean, and I, I do subscribe to the children's health defense newsletter. Um, yeah. I think like what the one thing that really bothers me is, um, you know, like every, no decision is perfect and there's always a risks and benefits. And I just, sometimes I see, okay, that's all the risk. That's all the bad stuff, but where's the comparison, right? Like where's, yeah. where is that comparison? Um, but then again, I also notice that sometimes when you want to express concern or um, not, or, you know, about the vaccine, or maybe you're not going to, you're, for example, well, it, you know, it's not doing as well against transmission as we have hoped. Then sometimes you get jumped on for, and they call you an anti-vaxxer, which is also not true. Of course, I mean that's ridiculous. Right, that's, right. So it's it, you know, I mean, even uh, at the at the beginning of. Uh, of the original Pfizer trial and the Moderna trial, you know, when we saw the 95, 98% efficacy of that. Yes. And I, I, I wrote a piece at that time saying, well, you know, be careful with this, you know, right. these numbers out on the public, because as we know from numerous other studies on drugs and on vaccines, when you do a short term, you know, three month study, you are not going to get the results that uh, you will eventually see when it is out in the public at large, because you have a very selected group of subjects. Right. You know, and and uh, you're not getting a cross section of, uh, of the population. And uh, right. you will always get better results, short term, small study than you eventually get, because you can't control for all the variables that are out there. Right. So. Uh, you know, I wasn't surprised that that you know, the vaccine wasn't quite as effective as it first seemed, because that is something exactly that was to be expected. Right. On the other hand, the fact that, you know, it wasn't 90% effective, but only, you know, let's say 70% is still good, because we would have accepted this vaccine, even if it were only 50% effective, right. because even that affects a lot of people. I mean, you know, we, we take the flu vaccine, which is around, you know, that 35. I, no. I mean, I didn't, yeah, I mean, well, I think that's the other thing. No one's really paid attention to these specific statistics about vaccines until now, really, right? Yeah. 
because I was think I actually asked myself the other day, how well does the flu vaccine stop transmission compared to, to the COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah. Right. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. No, I, I don't know the answer to that either. I don't oh. think anybody knows the answer because nobody's <laughs> ever looked at it. Yeah, but it's just like we never really thought about these things right. exactly. um, until now. Um, my, well, my last question here, then I have to go walk, well, attempt to walk my dog. He's still limping a little bit, but um, yeah, he's, he started his anti-inflammatory. Um, anecdotes, anecdotes, uh, not hardcore evidence, but sometimes uh, can stimulate a research a hypothesis. And, and Sure, as, as it should. I mean, a lot of science starts with an anecdote, right? Right, right. It starts with the aha moment. Yes. No, you, I, notice, you notice something interesting, you know, and you say, okay, well, you know, what is this? Let's, let's look at it further. Absolutely. It's the, the science starts with the anecdote and, and right. it's important. But also, you know, you have to understand that the plural of anecdote is not data. Right. And I do see, sometimes I see that, you know, well, so-and-so took this supplement and they're doing great. And that, you know, and that, so people use anecdotes improperly or inaccurately sure. so to speak well you know it's, it's, it's just like the people who say well you know my grandmother was 90 90 years old <laughs> and, and smoked, smoked, and, smoked and smoked every day yeah <laughs> well, that's true because they, they the people who died at 60 from smoking are, are not crying out from the grave right 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 that no that's the um i agree with that but i so when everybody has equal access to the to the internet and and the heart of this is the democratic sharing of information and not everybody has the same not only scientific background but same mental capacity right because sometimes people i feel like people just go online and they're anxious and they write something or they share a story um and sometimes i I say to myself well i don't really want to delete what that person wrote because i don't know where that person is mentally you know they could be really anxious. They could, they might be, it could be a cry for help. They might, they might need, just need somebody to talk gently to them and just have a conversation. But we also, but we see sometimes these anecdotes or side effects, um, you know, shared people who, who say, well, this happened because of the vaccine. And I know that causation is tricky there because- Well, I mean, you right? know, the, one of the biggest difficulties that we face in, in all controversial you know stories now is is the people's lack of understanding of difference between association and cause and effect you know uh, you know this is uh, one of my constant battles you know with the anti-gmo people who are out there drawing a graph about the increased uh, use of glyphosate and the increased incidence of autism and you know it's it's a, a graph where you know, the the two lines rise in parallel, and of course they expect people to come to the conclusion that therefore glyphosate causes autism. Mm. But obviously you can draw the same graph, showing sales increased sales of organic food and increased incidence of autism, and you also get a parallel set of lines, because both of those for different reasons have increased. Right. There's no right. link between them. Right. You know? Right. And, and this this lack of understanding of the difference between association and cause and effect relationships is is uh, uh, is a big problem in getting that message across to, to people because it is so seductive to come to the conclusion that because two factors run in parallel that they must be linked. Right, and I think recall bias is at play there too. Like a lot of a lot of people want to know; they want an answer. 
what oh, caused God. this, right? What caused sure. this? Sure. So, but I, I actually think what you did just there before uh, showing the rise of something that people wouldn't associate with the outcome, the negative outcome, right? Like, well, you see this rose too, and this drew too, like the, the sale of blueberries increased more blueberries cause autism. You know what I mean? And maybe that, yeah. maybe that's yeah. a good way to, to get that across. But do you think my last question here is, do you think that people who share anecdotes, what they believe to be true, their experience, do you think that that should be labeled as misinformation and censored? No, no, that, and I, no, it's an no. anecdotal story is not uh, misinformation. It's an anecdotal story and it should okay. be labeled as an anecdotal story. Anecdotal story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as long as you're not trying to pass something off as a fact. Uh, so what did you, like when Nikki Minaj, when she posted that, do you think she changed anybody's mind at all about the vaccine? I mean, I thought, I, I said, I thought her intention was pure. She was just sharing a story, but. Sharing a story, but I'm sure that there are people out there that said, hmm, hmm, you know, they, uh, that could be. So yeah, I'm sure there was all, there was a couple people. There's always there's always at least one person who's doing yeah. to, right. So, but should she should that tweet have been deleted? Um, I mean, she got a lot of backlash for that, and people were calling her, you know, an anti-vaxer and this and that. No, I, I think uh, you know, I mean, saying look, I, I had this, I had a what was it, a friend of my cousin, you know, who noticed <laughs> this. I mean, I, I I hope that that most people even Republicans are intelligent enough to recognize that as hearsay nonsense. Okay. You know, I mean, I, that, I don't look at that as evil. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just, so I think, it, so when, in conclusion, it sounds like, like the, the people who are, you know, maybe science, I guess somewhat or started out in the scientific field or know what they're doing or deliberately yeah. misleading and yeah. also tied to a... No, I, I think someone who seems to have a scientific background and claims that your DNA is being altered with a vaccine. That's a different story from Nikki, you know? Right, of course, of course. And maybe there is a financial incentive yeah. um, involved. Yeah. Usually there is, right? So, yeah. and, and that's true too. And I always, I pick on big pharma all the time, all day long, but there it is true that um, the supplement industry, it's, it's, you see the same thing, people doing stuff for profits or, you know, coming up with the, a new, the, uh, the non-regulation of the right. industry, I, I think is, is, is a scandal. Right. You right. Know, there should be one regulation when you're making a, a, a claim of, uh, of a health, when you're making a health claim, either you can back it up or you can't whether it's produced by a pharmaceutical company or a supplement company should make no difference. If you're making a claim of, let's say, cholesterol reduction, if you cannot back that up by proper scientific studies, you should not be allowed to make that claim. Yeah, and I think that's too, I mean, I know when I was younger, I would read a study and think, oh, look at this, this works for this. I think that evolves over time. I mean, there's stuff that I read and published 10 years ago that I would never do now because I've learned more right. about right evidence. Um, so, and which makes it trickier because, you know, because anybody can post online. Life, life is a learning experience. Right. right, right, right. No, of course. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, that's not good evidence. And here's why. But I didn't think that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, right. But now I do. But anyways, 
Thank you so much, Dr. Schwartz. It was really okay, interesting chatting with you and uh, enjoy. I, yeah, I look forward to hearing uh, what my listeners have to say about this one. <laughs> okay, and remember my offer about considering writing. Oh, no. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, they're good writers. It's 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 a uh, it's a good, um, good group. Uh, but yeah, I will. I will. Absolutely. I'll email you about that. Okay, very good. Okay. Thanks. Okay. All Have right. Walk with your limping dog. I, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. A special thank you again to Dr. Schwartz. I found the conversation very interesting. Um, I hope you did too. Let me know what you thought. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or through my website. And let me talk about my website for a minute. Bloomingwellness.com. It's been around for a while since 2011. Um, it's growing. It's grown a lot. I mean, talk about having some crazy ideas that evolve over time. Uh, <laughs> that was me. Um, but that's what that is what is supposed to happen. Like Dr. Schwartz mentioned. Um, that's why I kind of when people cherry pick things from people's past, I'm like, well, come on, that was 10 years ago. I mean, did that person, you know, stay in a wax museum for the last 10 years? They probably evolved since then. But I digress. Um, I've been updating my blog at bloomingwellness.com, mostly public health stuff, talking a lot about the pandemic trends, also a little wellness stuff, um, you know, things I'm working on too, uh, sharing them with you guys. So do check it out, bloomingwellness.com, and you can sign up for my newsletter if you go to the website too, and that's where I'll share um, sort of a summary of all the things I've covered during the weeks, whether it's podcasts, blogs, uh, maybe a deal on something. I don't know. I'm, I don't really do deals. I'm not a really good salesperson. But that said, I hope you read my books. Um, Manic Kingdom, Yours in Wellness, which is a, a parody on the wellness industry. Uh, I would listen to the audio version because the actress who recorded it did such a great job. And hopefully it makes you laugh. It might offend you if you work in wellness and you sell a bunch of products, but that's okay. That's okay. We can talk about it. Um, and Manic Kingdom is just a crazy true story. I'm also working on uh, a medical detective romance fictional series. I'm done with it. The first book of the series. I'm just going through it. And yes, I'm laughing too. I am laughing at myself thinking that I could write romance considering my history with relationships. Relationship advice is something that I don't give. No, that's not true. If you ask me for relationship advice, I will give it to you, but I probably wouldn't take my relationship advice. Anyways, that's another tangent. Um, When that book comes out, I hope you guys read it and I will, you know, talk about it in my newsletter. So sign up, stay in touch, all that good stuff. I got to get out of here and go for my run. Bye.